There is a handout, and maybe if anybody happens to come in the door, you can maybe give them one. Um, so what I would like to do is to teach uh, the lesson chapter 28, but, but if you would, just go ahead and keep your books closed, because we're going to take the material in not radically different order or something, but in a, in a slightly different order. But, uh, but I, I hope what you'll find is that after we spend the time on this material today, and then you go back and read the chapter, you'll go, oh yeah, this is what we just studied. So, um, so just take a look here with me at this first uh, page, and again, you have it in the handout. Um, we're going to take up uh, the subjunctive mood in Greek, which as you can see at the top, I sort of indicate has to do with futurity or uncertainty. And notice in particular contexts. So for instance, um, we'll get to this point in just a second, but if you see a subjunctive verb by itself, you cannot translate it. You, you can't do it. It needs to be in a context, in a sentence, in a clause, in order for you to know how to translate it. Okay. So subjunctives do not always mean, for instance, if you, some of you may have studied some Greek and learned that the subjunctive should always be, trans, always be translated, he might do something. Well, that's not, it's simply not true. Okay, you can't translate a subjunctive verb until you see the context in which it occurs. Okay, now just kind of reading along there. We've spent time, especially you, have spent time with the indicative mood, right? The mood that shows the speaker's conception or understanding of reality. And remember that language is perspectival. That is, you can have an insane person say, the moon is made of green cheese. And that verb is an indicative verb. Okay? Now he's wrong. So I, I, I told them not to do that, but do they care about you? No. Should they repent? Yes. So, so again, language is the perspective of the speaker. Now, if the speaker's Jesus, he's always right. Okay. But if the speakers are the Pharisees, they're not always right, right? So, so indicative is the speaker's conception and expression of what he or she thinks is real, right? But what if the speaker wants to talk about something that isn't real or isn't real yet? Now in English, we, I don't want to go into this mostly because it would take too much time and I'm not sure I understand it thoroughly. Oh, I didn't say that. Um, we do have subjunctive mood verbs. It's not all that widely used. But in general, we might say that wishes, I wish that something were true. And also, if you have a, a conditional sentence or an if-then statement that's contrary to fact, those kinds of things use the subjunctive in English. And there's just two little examples. Would that I had studied harder. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the only one laughing again. And if I were tall, I would be uncomfortable here. Again, that, by the way, that latter sentence, you can tell just because of the way it's constructed in English, that this is not actually true. It's the way we say an if-then sentence in English to make sure that we are expressing that we don't think it's true. If I were a woman, I couldn't be a pastor in the Missouri Synod. I mean, that's contrary to fact just by the way I said it. See? If this were December, it would be colder. See, there's an, just an example of a subjunctive English verb. Now, by the way, Greek has a way of, and you'll learn it, of uh, expressing that very same thing, contrary to fact, conditional sentences. So in English, the subjunctive is not widely used. 
okay? In Greek, it is widely used, but in different ways. It's extremely common. And so what we're going to do, our plan of attack is, as I've indicated here, we're going to look at morphology, and then we're going to look at subjunctives as they occur in independent clauses. <clears throat> I'll pause over that for just a second. Dr. Veltz has two chapters on the subjunctive. I think it's organized brilliantly. Okay? The first chapter, chapter 28, uh, has to do with four uses of subjunctive mood verbs in different kinds of independent clauses. And chapter 29 is uses of the subjunctive in dependent clauses, various kinds. Okay. Now the second chapter actually is much more um, extensive in terms of different kinds of uses. So I think he's done a, a brilliant job because he gives us morphology, you know, how to, what's the characteristic sign of subjunctive mood verbs. And then he takes up these four uses of the subjunctive in independent clauses. And again, just to review, because of the English educational system, which doesn't emphasize grammar at all, an independent clause is just a bunch of words with a verb, and it makes sense standing on its own. Right? That's an independent clause. A dependent clause, on the other hand, is a bunch of words with a verb, and it doesn't make sense standing on its own. So for instance, until I go to the store. Is that a dependent clause or an independent clause? Dependent. Yeah, it's dependent. You need a main clause here. I'm not going to start the car until I go to the store. Now, how about that? I'm not going to start the car. It makes sense. It's a complete sentence on its own. It's an independent clause. So today we're going to take up, again, both the morphology of the present and aorist stem subjunctive and also these four special uses of the subjunctive in independent clauses. Okay.